0: We've looked at uh, nine characters in in church history on Sunday evenings in recent months. Uh, The tenth is tonight, uh, the final one. Um, We'll we'll maybe come back sometime in the future, I don't know. Um, But uh, we've called it uh, Flawed but Faithful, uh, because there's no such thing as a perfect man or woman, uh, just Christ. There's no such thing as someone who is Flawless. And so even though we have much good to say, uh, much faith being shown, much um, uh, uh, difficulty and um, adversity being faced uh, with uh, God's help, uh, uh, yet there are flaws in every single one of the people that we consider. Tonight, um, some of the flaws in a man called Charles Haddon Spurgeon are not, not that well known. Uh, Charles uh, Haddon Spurgeon is is famous in in Christian circles. He's very famous as far as Christians are concerned. He's he's a household name. Uh, He's known as a preacher. Uh, The Prince of Preachers, no less. That's Charles Spurgeon. Uh, He has um, written uh, published sermons uh, uh, stretched to 63 volumes. 63 volumes like this. A man in England, uh, in Leamington, gave me this. It's volume 37. It's got Charles Haddon Spurgeon's uh, sermons in it. There are 63 of them. Um, His writings composed uh, the largest set of books written by a single author in the history of Christianity. Uh, he, he, was, um, he was known for his extraordinary uh, God-given ability uh, to preach, uh, to, to, to speak, uh, to, to rouse uh, crowds of people to hear God's word, uh, to be a vehicle by which uh, God speaks to people, to preach um, the text of the Bible in, a, in an expository manner. What I mean by that is that he, he went through it line by line and verse by verse, carefully uh, considering what God was saying, setting it in context. Preaching it and deciding and giving the application. He, uh, he preached more than 600 sermons before he was 20 years of age. And so many people, so, so many people came to hear it. The, the typical congregation on a Sunday was 6,000. Uh, it's estimated that in his lifetime he preached to 10 million people. That's a lot of people when the world's population was a lot less back then too. We're in the region of the 1830s when he was born. But it was not all glory by any means. It was not all sort of celebrity and big crowds and, and, and some sort of fame uh, and, and fortune at all. No, what is notable about Spurgeon is, is that he preached through such adversity. Such difficulty from many corners of his life. Corners like Criticism. Corners like tragedy and even depression. Spurgeon uh, was born uh, in, on the 19th of June 1834 uh, in a village called Kelvedon near Col- Colchester in Essex, northeast of London. Uh, at the time uh, he was born, Queen Victoria, of course, was on the throne. Uh, the, these were the days of Charles Dickens and the like, uh, and orphans on the streets. Uh, Spurgeon's parents were, were in fact themselves unable to, to look after him when he when he got to fourteen months uh, of age. He he spent uh, the next five years living with his father's parents in the village of Stamborn. Uh, his grandfather was the minister uh, of Stamborn Congregational Church. Uh, Charles would uh, would get access to his library, many books written by the Puritans. Uh, those were um, people. Uh, pastors and teachers from from back uh, in the kind of 1700s, very strong on the word of God, strongly committed uh, to its preaching and to holding tight to the truth of it. He read Pilgrim's Progress. He's not the only one that did in our series, if you remember. And he read Pilgrim's Progress so many times that he was able to say that he reckoned he'd read it more than a hundred times in his life by the end of it. His, grandma, his grandmother was said to have given him a penny uh, for every Isaac Watts hymn that he was able to memorize. So he would, um, he would know hymns like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Jesus Shall Reign," that kind of thing, he, he would know them all. Even before his conversion at the age of 15, he, he knew the message that would save him. Uh, because he knew from what he was reading that, that God, was, before God he was spiritually dead uh, and there was a remedy in, in Christ. Uh, he, he got that from, from reading the Puritans. He said that he was under a conviction of sin for the best part of four years. But he was converted at the age of 15 on the 6th of January uh, 1850. Uh, God opened his blinded eyes that day uh, as a lay Methodist preacher preached in Colchester Methodist Church. Charles was not meant to go to Colchester Methodist Church that morning. Uh, There was a snowstorm and uh, as a result of that he took refuge in this church on his way to another church which he never got to. He said this about, um, about that day. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up. We would say snooed in, I think. I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, as well that preachers be instructed, taught, that means. But, But this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. That's from Isaiah 45. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then, lifting up his hand, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once, says Charles, the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting for, to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away, he said. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. I didn't want to paraphrase that. I think I needed to read it. It's powerful, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon. That's how he was saved. Charles had no formal theological training, uh, but two years after his conversion, uh, he was called to be the pastor of uh, the Congregational Church in the village of Water Beach. There were about 40 members there. Uh, two years later, uh, in 1854, at the age um, of... 19, he accepted the call to New Park Chapel uh, in London, New Park Street Chapel in London. That was later to become, uh, it changed its name, it was to become the Metropolitan Tabernacle where he would remain as the pastor for 38 years until he died. When he arrived there in New Park Chapel, uh, there were 232 members. Uh, in the next um, 38 years, 14,460 people joined the church. That's about 380 members, new members every single year. So God gave them remarkable growth. 14,000 people joined the church. Saying that uh, Spurgeon had no theological training uh, suggests something that many tried to later emulate and make a matter of spiritual prowess or um, achievement. Uh, but the truth be told, Charles ha- had many teachers. He had many lecturers. Because he learned from the books that he read. And he read a lot of books. Uh, he, he, read, uh, he, he said that he, he read about six substantial books a week, and he had a phenomenal memory. He believed in formal theological education himself because he set up a preacher's college. He just didn't go through one himself. But his commitment, I want to say, his commitment to preaching the Bible is incredible. Uh, he believed that God's word needed to be heard. He believed that the words of, of this book um, are, are God's word because God wrote it. He once said, The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. In an era when liberal attitudes to God's word were on the increase, Charles was firm in his resolve. People in his day began to place their own thoughts, uh, their own um, ideas above Scripture. Where what God's Word said then had to go through the filter of, um, do I think it's true? But Spurgeon was unmoved by this. He said this, let us hold fast. Tenaciously, doggedly, with a death, a death grip to the truth of the inspi- inspiration of God's word, everything in the railway service depends on the accuracy of the signals. When these are wrong, life will be sacrificed. On the road to heaven, we need unerring signals, or the catastrophe will be far more terrible. He was passionate. About God's word. He was passionate about seeing those who did not believe one for Christ. He said this My whole soul agonized over men. Every nerve of my body has been strained, and I could have wept my very being out of my eyes and carried my whole frame away in a flood of tears if I could but win souls for Jesus. Charles Spurgeon also had an incredible work ethic. He had to look after what he calls the orphanage. Uh, this was an orphanage that his father had founded and he 'd been given uh, the, the charge of. He was in charge of a church with four thousand members on average, uh, with all the associated marriages and, and funerals that would have went along with that. Uh, the, the weekly sermons, uh, two of them had to be revised. He said uh, that the sword and the trial, which was a, a magazine which he edited, had to be had to be edited. And besides all that, uh, he had a, a weekly average of 500 letters to be answered. That's some going. And that's not to mention uh, the advice that he was asked for from numerous contacts that, that were uh, that, that, that had difficult situations in churches that they, they wanted to, to him to, to help with. He, he married uh, Susanna Thompson on the 8th of January 1856. Uh, She's known as Susie. Uh, She was somewhat overshadowed uh, by her husband, but uh, was herself a prolific uh, author and a truly remarkable woman in her own right. Uh, In fact, there's a new book out about her, which I can fully recommend, called uh, Susie by Ray Rhodes Jr. Uh, It's it's, it's at the front of the bookshop, but it's only new. Individual copies of of Charles' sermons were were sold in piles in corner stores in London and across England. That's the sort of um, situation that we're talking about here. People uh, stood for hours uh, to to get a place in the room where the preaching was going to be happening. And he has this ability uh, to have his audience hanging on his every word. His use of illustration was second to none. He told this story one time of a a rich young man who came to see him. uh, And he said, uh, you know what, Charles, I can't stand your Christian people. And Spurgeon says, what do you mean? He says, they're just always moaning and groaning and complaining. Spurgeon says to him, I'll tell you what, I'll take you, let me take you to one of these miserable Christians. So he took him to meet this poor old woman uh, who who was doubled with rheumatism and groaning with the pain. She said, it's really bad. You know, Pastor, it never gets any better. Spurgeon said to her, I want to introduce you to this young man that I brought with me. Uh, he's, He's rich. He's healthy. He's strong. Every pleasure that the earth can give him is his. Tell me now. Um, oh, uh, Mrs, would you, would you change with him? She replies, change with him? The three words were enough for a great sob to come from the audience. Even grown men were crying in the situation in the, in the sermon. Charles worked 18 hours a day, and he wrote more than 140 books. Uh, some of the more famous ones included uh, The Treasury of David, which is his commentary on the, on the Psalms. It took him 20 years to, to compile it, to, to, to write it. Uh, there's morning and evening devotions, which are still rich to this day. You can get them uh, easy enough. His publisher, uh, Passmore and Alabaster, uh, made history because they, they, they only had one author on their books. Charles Spurgeon and yet they were able to run a successful business because such was the popularity of this single author such was, his, um, such was the demand the famous missionary to Africa David Livingstone once asked Spurgeon how he managed it you forget says Spurgeon there are two of us that probably meant uh, him and Christ working in him he didn't say what he meant, but I imagine that's what he meant. Maybe that is something that you can't relate to. Maybe that makes you feel uh, lethargic tonight. It makes me feel sluggish. I'll tell you that. But Spurgeon's life was not all glory and prominence and great work ethic, and uh, that would put many of us to shame. I want to say to you, he also suffered very. He, he suffered a lot. He really did, and maybe that's something you can relate to instead, I don't know. He suffered firstly from disgruntled members. People are people. Uh, sometimes they, they are difficult to work with. Uh, he had uh, people uh, counting up his sermon length by the second and saying, you were a few minutes over this week, pastor. You were a few minutes under. Counting up by the second. He had people giving him a full meandering meandering story as to why the family pew was empty this week, just as he was about uh, to enter the pulpit to preach the members. He suffered from an unsympathetic press in England. Uh, The Essex Standard wrote this about him. His style is that of of the vulgar colloquial, varied by rant all the most solemn mysteries of our holy religion are, are, are by him rudely, roughly and impiously handled. Common sense is outraged and decency disgusted. They didn't like him. Church of England was, was kosher for the press. But anything else, anything separate from that was, was uh, less than um, acceptable in those days. They called him the last of the Puritans. But that was like a put down because they didn't like the Puritans. Uh, But Charles actually liked that that comment. He suffered from tragedy. On the 19th of October, uh, 1856, uh, Spurgeon was preaching in the large music hall of the Royal Surrey Gardens. The seating capacity uh, was 10,000, but the the crowd far surpassed that. Uh, Someone shouted fire, and there's a large stampede, and seven people sadly died. And many dozens were injured as they trampled over one another to get out. There was no fire. Spurgeon was 22 years old at the time and he, was, he, he collapsed from the shock of hearing the outcome of what happened. Uh, it impacted his, his mental health greatly. Uh, he said himself, Never a soul went so near the burning furnace of insanity and yet came away unharmed. But lots of people didn't think he had come away unharmed. Lots of people saw this as a contributing factor which he carried with him the whole way to the end of his life. The suffering endured on and off. It, it, he, he died a comparatively early death, age 57. He suffered from tragedy, but he also suffered from illness in his family. Uh, He, the the day after that um, tragedy in the music hall, his his wife Susie gave birth to their uh, twin boys. Uh, She was after this never able uh, to have any more children and suffered from uh, from gynecology issues. Uh, She later became disabled by illness uh, for the rest of her days. She outlived Charles, uh, but he had to care for her for many many years. He suffered from controversy. Increasingly in the last decade, uh, he, there's something called the, the Downgrade Controversy, uh, which flares up in 1887 in London. Uh, it's, it's, in, it's, it's named after an article which he published in, in uh, the, the Sword and the Trial, that's the, 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 the magazine which he edits. He called it um, the downgrade article. Uh, It was all got to do with uh, the the metropolitan tabernacle, the church leaving, uh, withdrawing from the Baptist Union uh, over over doctrinal integrity. Uh, It was called the downgrade because that was how he described uh, certain other Baptist outlook towards the Bible in those days. They had downgraded the Bible. Uh, the, the, the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, or God's word alone, was beginning to slip. Uh, he, he said that um, critical scholarship and Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and other concepts were weakening their position on scripture. They were basically buying into the spirit of the age. They were allowing man to, uh, to come above God's word in the pecking order and to critique it and decide what parts were, were allowable and acceptable and what parts were not. So the, the church withdraws from, from the Baptist Union. This is a big deal in those days. Uh, many have thought he'd done the wrong thing, uh, but he described this as the greatest trial of his life. And that was not the end of the struggles, because he was not that well himself either. He suffers from personal illness. Aside from the mental turmoil which we, we, we spoke about, uh, he, he suffered from gouts, uh, rheumatism and, and inflammation of the kidneys uh, during his life for long spells. It's quite famous that Spurgeon smoked a pipe. I don't know if you realise that, but that's quite well known. Um, but back in the days uh, when medical science didn't know that that was bad for him, I'm quite sure that that did not help his ailments. And yet he manages to keep on preaching in the church. And that is quite remarkable. Sometimes he can't. The texts of his sermons are, as I said, in these volumes. And I want to read uh, from uh, a sermon that he preached on the 3rd of May 1891. Uh, It's in this volume. It said this To my great sorrow, last night I was unable to preach. Last Sunday night I was unable to preach. I had prepared a sermon upon this text with much hope of its usefulness, for I intended it to be a supplement to the morning sermon, which was a doctrinal exposition. The evening sermon was intended to be practical and to commend the whole subject to the attention of inquiring sinners. I came here feeling quite fit to preach when an overpowering nervousness oppressed me and I lost all self-control and left the pulpit in anguish. I came hither this morning with the same subject. I've been turning it over and wondering why it was so. Peradventure, this sermon was not to be preached on that occasion because God would teach the, the preacher more of his own feebleness and cast him more fully upon the divine strength. That, was certainly, that has certainly been the effect upon my own heart. Perhaps also there are some here this morning who were not here last Sunday, last Lord's Day evening, whom God intends to bless by the sermon. The people were not here per adventure for whom the eternal decree of God had designed the message and they may be here now. That's as far as I'll go. But he battled on. Uh, he right to the end. Uh, the the gout gets worse. Uh, uh, the painful inflammation of his joints travels from his feet right up right up his body. He he leaves Hurn uh, Hill Station in London on the 26th of October uh, 1891. Uh, and and to friends who who come to say goodbye to him, he said, "The fight is killing me," and he was right. He was uh, sent to Menton. Menton in English, I think that's how you would say it. It's in France, it's, uh, it's uh, near Monaco on, uh, in southern France uh, where he was sent because the heat would have uh, helped as a treatment uh, for some of his ailments. But he dies there on the 31st of January, 1892, aged just 57. But how did he manage? Preaching is difficult when you have mental struggles and I want to say to you that, that preaching is, is not like um, when I used to work in an office. I, I remember those days very clearly. I worked for an office in six or seven, for six or seven years after uh, I studied at university. It's not the same as, as having uh, to get up and, and get on with the day uh, because you've got children that have to, to go to school or, or something like that. Because preaching is different. A preacher's work is, is more than mental work. It's heart work. It's, it's the labour of our soul. And that's what makes it difficult uh, for, for Spurgeon. That's what makes it really difficult. It's hard to keep going with depression and dark thoughts. People tell me this. I, I've heard many people talking about it. It's hard to keep going if you're, if you're forced by life to, to work on when you have to. Or, or you have to care for children or, or, a, or a spouse when you have to. Or if you have a tough marriage. It's hard to keep going. But if, if this was worse, if, if, God can, if God can sustain someone to keep preaching his very soul during depression, then that's, that's a, story we all, a story we all need to have in our locker, I would say. That's a story we, need, we all need to know about. How did he do it? How did he manage? Well, I think we can outline several things about Spurgeon, just as we come to a close. First of all, he knew who God was. He knew who God was. Yes, uh, he worked extremely hard uh, all those long days. But but the answer to to the question is not reached if we consider what Charles Spurgeon did. The, The explanation, says one of his biographers, lies in the book in his hands. He knew God in his word. He did not uh, read his Bible merely to prepare sermons. No, no. He he read it far more than that would require. Uh, He he believed that this one book is enough to last a man throughout the the whole of his life, however diligently he may study it. He believed in a big Bible, in other words. He knew that without the Word of God, and without the Holy Spirit to comfort him through the Word of God, he could never have endured And he also knew that God is a sovereign God. Now this goes against what uh, many would say. But Charles saw the sovereignty of God in in all of his troubles. If God be God, then then it's here for his ultimate good, was how he would see it. He saw something of God's design, and we even heard it in what I just read from his sermon. He, He could see that there was a purpose for this. He could see several good things about a preacher with depression. He said this. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. He could see that God was using it to keep him humble. The size of the crowd on a Sunday morning might tell him otherwise. His ability to, to, to rouse the crowd might tell him otherwise. Uh, but but uh, with Paul... Like, like with Paul, with the thorn in the flesh, whatever that ailment was exactly. It was there to stop him from being conceited, from being, proud, from being proud. It was there for him to lean more on what was his true strength. The strength that shows more clearly in human weakness. He said this. Consciousness of self-importance is a hateful delusion, but one into which we fall as naturally as weeds grow on a dunghill. We cannot be used of the Lord, but what we also dream of, personal greatness. We think ourselves almost indispensable to the church. Not that you should desire to be depressed, but that you should see God at work no matter what. Because Spurgeon's sorrows brought him back to God and closer as a result. Listen to him talking about it again. I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house, it's the best book in a minister's library. Because his, his mental health helped his preaching. In certain ways, his mental condition enabled him to preach with more reality. Because he knew the struggles of life that some of his congregation had, many of them. I met a woman um, on the invitation team in the summer one night um, who, who appeared to despise my apparent youthfulness. Now, she maybe thought I was in my 20s. Sometimes people do, okay? <laughs> and that I didn't therefore know uh, anything about the struggles of life that she in her 70s, I guess, uh, she was. Uh, that I didn't know anything about uh, what she had seen, that I was somehow green about life. How could I know suffering and trial? Now, I didn't tell her. Uh, I didn't tell her of my life experiences. I didn't see the need to do that. I, I could have spoken of, of car accidents and health scares. I didn't do that. But the point was that she thought I didn't know anything about it. So therefore I couldn't say to her, you know, the Lord's good and, and difficulty because it should, you, you see the point? But a young Spurgeon, even though he was young, well, he, he could understand difficulty in his 20s and 30s. He, he knew what it was like to, to, to struggle. And that brought a reality to his preaching. That made it real. He also knew his limits. Now um, I, I said he did hour days. But he also took one day off a week. Uh, and, and that wasn't Sunday. Uh, he also uh, en- enjoyed what he refers to as a mouthful of sea air. Uh, a stiff walk in the wind's face. He said they would not give grace to the soul, but they were the next best thing. And so we can learn from him, can't we? We can look to God in his word, in whatever situation we're in. We can know him better, know his strength more. We can see good in this, because he only works for good. We can know our limits and the natural means that can help us. And we can also battle on in God's strength. Because we, we know that his promises, his word is true. And that is something that really sustained Charles Spurgeon. That God's word is true and his promises cannot fail. As we read at the beginning. My grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is made perfect in weakness. Plenty of flaws. But a faith in an unmovable God is good for life, no matter what God gives you in it. Let's bow our heads together for a moment of prayer.